Well, good morning. It's so good to see all of you today. We're glad that you've joined us uh, for worship this morning and to go to God's Word. I want to invite you to turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 9 through 11, just a uh, handful of verses here. And, uh, you know, these are confusing times uh, to live. There's so much going on in our society, in our country, all around the world, in our own families, that uh, it can be disorienting to know how to navigate life as, as Christians in these days, and yet God has placed us here in this time, in this place, in this season to be a light for Him. And First uh, Corinthians 6, really, really the whole book, but specifically this chapter is, is helpful, I think, to um, see that if we're confused in this day and age, that we're in good company. That many times throughout history, Christians have struggled to find uh, their place in society and know how to navigate all of the things coming at them. And, and certainly that's the case in, in, uh, in Corinth, as Paul writes this letter to the church to, to help them, to guide them, uh, maybe to correct lack of information or ignorance or, or uh, to correct worldliness. And so that's what we're going to think about today is, is uh, how to live as Christians in a confused world. I've entitled the message Kingdom Ethics or Kingdom Ethics and Morality in a Confused Culture because that is what Paul gives here to the church in Corinth and really as a gift in our day. These things were written also for us that we might know how to walk worthy of the name of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, let's read verses 9 through 11. Now you remember last week he spoke into a situation where, where Christians were suing one another. They had gotten caught up in the worldly trap of, of uh, uh, politics and lawsuits to try to gain power and favor and prominence. And so he is correcting that, and in verse 9 he writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. The first thing I want us to think about today from this passage is a kingdom basis for Christian morality and ethics. A kingdom basis for our Christian morality and ethics. The Christian view, the biblical view of how to order our lives morally, ethically, it's rooted in something very important, and that is the character of God. So kingdom or Christian morality and ethics are rooted in the very character of who God is. Okay? So the Bible makes clear that there is right and wrong. There are some people today that say, well, there is no right, there is no wrong. I, I don't think anybody really believes that. They may say that. The Bible makes clear there is right and wrong. There is good and evil. There is righteous. There is unrighteousness. In fact, Paul is saying, some of you are wronging others. You're defrauding others. This ought not to be. He's talking about a way of life that is contrary to something. It's contrary to the biblical vision of morality and of right and wrong. So here's a biblical narrative for you. Here's the, the Bible's conception of life. It is that God is the Creator. He is the only perfect being. He is beautiful. He is glorious. He is holy. He is unchanging. He is perfect in every way. He is pure, and He is light, and He is good. And God created us. He created all that is, other than Himself. He has existed eternally. He created angels and principalities and powers, he, and He spoke this world into creation. And then He created man and woman as a special creature. 
to rule and to reign, to be his stewards, to be his representatives. Here's what the Bible, it doesn't use these terms exactly, but it says we are image bearers. We are to shine forth who God is in everything. We're to go about, and he says, fill the earth to Adam and Eve and subdue it. Be my stewards. Be my representatives. We are image bearers. We are meant to convey who God is in all that we are, in all that we do, in all that we say. We're image bearers. Okay? And then the Bible says that we're fallen, that all of humanity has fallen short of the glory of God. We have not done that. We have not imaged forth God. We have fallen. We've messed up. And sin is what we call that, messing up, that rebellion. But another way to think about sin is to think about it as immorality. Sinful immorality is this then. It's defaming the character of God by failing as image bearers. So, so if what we do is we shine forth in our lives saying this is what God is like, this is good, we have defamed God if we have not shown forth who He is in His purity and holiness. Not only that, we could think about sin and immorality as defacing creation. That is ourselves and others in our sin. So defaming God and defacing creation is what sin and immorality is all about, or unrighteousness. And listen, when I say sin, that's a, that's a sure little word, S-I-N, sin. And it seems like a, not only a little word, it seems like a relatively little thing to many of us. But if you think about sin in terms of this, that it is defaming God and defacing his creation, both ourselves and others and the world around us, well, then we realize actually it's not a very small thing to defame God. And the problem in Corinth is that they're defaming God and they're defacing creation. They're defiling themselves. They're desecrating and dragging through the mud the name of Jesus by their acceptance of sinful ways. And really, we're going to get into there are ten specific sins. Actually, it's not sins. It's sinful patterns of life that Paul is going to address. It is not the occasional sin in the Christian's life that is being addressed here. Rather, it is this problem. that Many Christians had adopted a libertarian point of view, not politically libertarian, sometimes it's called antinomian, it's, it's against the law. It's saying, it's saying that it really doesn't matter if we're Christians, it doesn't matter what we do, there is no law for us. They had adopted a wrong point of view, and they had made the grace of God a license to sin. Either that or they had just merely adopted the culture's ethics and morality, and Paul is now going to address that. So it's not the occasional sin that the Christian says, God, I did this, and, and I'm fighting against it, and I'm seeking your forgiveness for it, but instead it's a lifestyle of sin and immorality and defacing and defaming God. Okay, so I want, I want to get that out there now as we think about these sins. So it's not just sins, but sinners, habitual lifestyles so marked by gross immorality that the person now has become identified with it. So let's look at that list again. Notice what he says. Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So unrighteous. In other words, you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you are an unrighteous person, if you are one who is marked by this. This is who you are and what you're about. And so to not inherit the kingdom of God, I think, is to say that you will not inherit eternal life. You will not be with God in eternity, but you will be separated from God you will be separated from joys and happiness and everlasting love and beauty and goodness, but instead will be in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and mourning for a ruined life. Okay, so that's what he's saying. Now look, here I've categorized this list of ten sins into, I think, two big categories. There is the sexual immorality and there is social immorality. Sexual immorality, social immorality. So he says of these who whose lives are characterized by these things, they should not expect that this is in line with the kingdom of God and therefore will not inherit it. So he says, do not be deceived now. 
The Corinthians had been deceived into thinking it was okay to do whatever they wanted, to live like the world. He says, church, don't be deceived. Listen to this now. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. That's the first list, the sexually immoral. The sexually immoral. Fornicators, that is sexual activity outside of marriage, before marriage primarily, right? Cohabitating, it's, it's any kind of sexual activity that is not in its proper place. Hey, God designed sex to be a good thing. And it's a good thing when it's kept in its proper place. It's like dynamite and it's powerful. And so fornication is beginning to be involved in sexual activity before marriage, before it's time. So he says, fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not only that, adulterers. That is, once someone is married, then they spill out their sexual activity outside of that marriage. Greek and Roman law condoned and encouraged men to engage in all sorts of outside of the marriage sexual activity. Okay? They said, you should do this. This is good. It actually, it, it was kind of weird and warped. They actually believed that it kept the marriage pure if the men went out and did things out in the world, outside of their marriage, sexually. Greeks especially were bad about that. But now in Rome, and, and I told you that, that Corinthians, uh, Corinth is now shifted from a Greek culture to a Roman culture. Actually, in Rome there was a movement, and it was, the movement has been termed the New Roman Wives. So here's basically what the lady said. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. But instead of insisting, which was hard for them to do, instead of insisting on sexual purity within the marriage, what they said is, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And there was a movement of women to say, we're going to do this too. And this is one of the things that has thrown the Corinthian church into mass confusion. They're dealing with this new Roman wives movement. So sexual immorality, there was the Greek view, now there was the Roman view. And Paul says, don't be deceived. Adulterers, whether male or female, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says idolaters. Now, I said I categorized sexual immorality. It's kind of strange that Paul sandwiches in idolatry right here. Not fornicators, not adulterous, not effeminate or homosexual, homosexuals. Idolaters. He puts that right there. And I think that it's involved in the sexual immorality. Most commentators say what was going on is you had idols and, and temples where there was this debauched worship that involved prostitutes and all kinds of sexual immorality. And so it was involved in sexual immorality. But not only that, it's to say outside of the sexual aspects that worshiping anything other than God or anyone is a sin. It's a heinous sin. All right, so idolatry. And then he says effeminate. Effeminate homosexual males in that time were men who basically took on the role of women. Okay? They, they began to dress like women. They did their hair like women. And not only that, they took the sexually passive role in a homosexual relationship. They took the woman's role. So they were the passive partner in a homosexual activity. That is what effeminate means. And then he says, the next one, homosexuals. That is, the man who takes the active role, or the male role, in a homosexual relationship or activity. So, there you go. Sexual immorality, and Paul says, don't be deceived. Those whose lifestyles are marked by these things, who are given over to these things, are not in line with the kingdom of God and will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, not only sexually immoral or immorality, but social immorality. He says, thieves, people who steal from other people, take what does not belong to them, will not inherit the kingdom of God. The covetous, that is, those who are not satisfied with what God has provided, but instead it's always more, 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 and what other people have, he says, the covetous, the greedy, and the swindlers, those who cheat people through trickery out of their things. So people whose social 
relationships are marked by those things, he said, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not only that, drunkards, those who constantly are involved in excessive use of drink, mind-altering substances and that sort of thing. And in Corinth, it was primarily a social issue because they had these dinner parties. And their dinner parties were wild, raucous places where the wine flowed freely and there was all sorts of debauchery. He said, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, revilers. We talked a little bit about that last week. That's those who are foul-mouthed. They are abusive verbally. They are slanderers of other people. They are the kind of people who are hateful. They are full of hate. And it spews out of their mouth. He said, those will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's pretty shocking, isn't it? All of these things, that's what he says. And in chapter 6, Paul is saying to some of these folks, look, you may not be involved in all of these sexual immoralities, but if you're involved in social immoralities where your relationships with other people are marked by greed and theft and swindling, covetousness and abusive speech, that is not in line with the kingdom of God. So he's addressing those things in chapter 6. And now he will pick up the sexual immorality beginning in the next chapter. And he's going to talk through those things with the church and help them to see some important things. And here's what I want to say to you today. The Bible spans thousands of years. And you will see some things in the Bible change. In the Old Testament, there are rules and laws for national Israel under the Old Covenant. And yes, there are some things that change in the New Covenant in terms of the expectations, like I think you can eat uh, pork and catfish in the New Testament. God pulls back some of the strictures that He gave to Old Testament Israel that were for a day and time. But what you will find is the Bible is consistent from cover to cover when it comes to matters of immorality and morality. They are rooted in God's character and His purity and His holiness and His expectations. The role of men and women, as far as image bearers, as far as creatures that God has made, that has not changed. From the days of Adam and Eve to today, we are still divine image bearers. If you are a male, God has created you and implanted in you His divine image. And He wants you to shine that forth in certain ways. If you are a female, same thing. You are a divine image bearer. And uniquely, you are to shine forth the glory and the image of God in the ways that He has designed and given us. And so, Christians, Our ideas about morality and immorality and about ethics, what is acceptable, what is not, what is righteous, what is unrighteous, is rooted in the character of God that never changes. God never changes. That's where we find our guiding star. And we fail. Sometimes we fail. Paul says, such were some of you. And honestly, he could say, and such are some of you doing right now, but let me correct this thing. You are to walk worthy of Christ in this day. The second thing in this passage I want us to see is the cultural confusion in Corinth and the problem with what is called moral relativism. If God is not our fixed point, our guiding star, our north star, that is the basis of our morality, then what is? What is? What happens if we remove God from the nucleus of the cell? If we remove God as the sun in our solar system? I'll tell you what happens. Everything scatters and becomes confused. Moral relativism, I said we're addressing cultural confusion and the problem with moral relativism that was a problem in the early church and in that day, and it's a problem today. It's the belief that what is good or evil, moral or immoral, right or wrong, good or bad, 
is merely defined by a vote, popular vote, or by political power, or the feelings of a group. So morality becomes human-centric. We decide. I decide. My family decides. The government decides what is right or wrong. That is moral relativism. Moral relativism, by and large, is rooted in this. It's, it's looking around the world and across time and going, you know what, cultures are vastly different in what they accept, what they find to be right or wrong. And in light of that, we go, hmm, well, there must not be a real right or wrong because no one has agreed. Well, let me submit this to you, that everybody can be wrong. Everybody can be wrong. No one might be right. They're not all right. Moral relativism ends up saying, we're just going to have to decide for us how we feel or what the group says is right or wrong. And that is a problem. And the Corinthians have adopted that. They have decided to just go with the flow as things change. You know what's interesting in this passage? I don't know if you caught that. Paul talks about homosexuality with two different terms. Did you notice that? The effeminate, and then he says men who have sex with other men, who have homosexual relationships. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Why would he address that with two different terms? Well, here's the deal. In Greek culture, homosexuality was widely practiced, and it was adopted as okay. In fact, it had inflamed the culture to the point primarily among men, but even pedophilia between men and boys, all that kind of thing going on. Greek culture in Corinth was traditionally Greek. That was totally acceptable. And just the more the merrier, do what you want. And it was totally debauched. As the Roman Empire came in and took over Corinth, it became the rule of the day. Roman laws actually accepted some homosexual practice and forbid others. And here was the thing. No Roman man was to be an effeminate, was to be the passive partner. It was actually against the law for a Roman male, a Roman citizen who was a male, to be the passive in a homosexual relationship. However, the Roman male could do whatever he wanted as an active to just about anybody, man, woman, or otherwise. This is pretty sick, isn't it? One thing we should think about when we think about these things is the things we're seeing in our culture and country today, they're not new. Cultures throughout the ages have battled with these kinds of sins and these kinds of questions. And so, the Romans have changed things. All of a sudden, they have outlawed certain homosexual activities. Actually, they've gotten more conservative, if you will. And the church had adopted that. They said, well, we're getting more conservative, so let's just, let's just go with that. And Paul says, don't be confused. The Greek way is wrong, that accepts all of it. And hey, listen, the Roman way is wrong. It says, if you're a Roman, you can be the active partner. He says, no, no. <laughs> let, me just, let me just clear this up for you. All of that, all homosexuality is outside of God's plan. No matter what, the government says, no matter what popular culture says, no matter what you see on social media, no matter how passionate the argument, Paul says it goes against the kingdom of God. Okay? And he's not just picking on this one sin, by the way. That was just something that the culture was battling with. And so the church was battling with it, trying to figure out what are we going to approve, what are we going to disapprove of. And Paul says, as a Christian... Your idea of morality is based on the character of God, the commands of God, and the understanding that we are divine image bearers, not on what the Greeks or what the Romans say is acceptable. But sadly in our day, moral relativism hasn't just crept in. It's here. It's been like a tidal wave. and It has become really the standard that most people, especially a study I read from Barna, said that teens and adult, young adults especially have adopted moral relativism as their way of thinking about right and wrong. Consider this, in a, a widespread study, 31% of teens and young adults 
strongly agreed with the statement that right and wrong changes over time with society. Paul says, no, no. Some things are set, right and wrong, in the character of God. Another 43% of teens and young adults somewhat agree that right and wrong changes over time with society. So let me add that up for you. 74%, that's almost three-quarters of young people who were surveyed, including young adults, said that they believed that right and wrong changes depending on what society says. Folks, that's just not true. Oh, sure, there are certain laws and things that are up for grabs, but when it comes to the basic ideas about morality, what is right and wrong, good and evil, in the sight of God, society may agree or they may disagree, but that doesn't change anything. Moral relativism is a philosophy or a way of thinking that is terribly flawed. It's terribly flawed. Consider this, philosopher J.P. Moreland speaks about one, I'm just going to share a couple of problems with the ideas about moral relativism. J.P. Moreland says that one of the problems is known as the reformer's dilemma. The reformer's dilemma. Think about this. If relativism is true, that whatever the society says is right and wrong, if, if that is true, Moreland says, then it's logically impossible for a society to have a virtuous, moral reformer, like a Gandhi, like a Martin Luther King Jr. It is impossible to have such a thing as a virtuous reformer. Because if it's wrong to go against society, then a reformer who goes against society is necessarily wrong and immoral. Moral relativism is shot full of philosophical holes. It refuses by its very definition, to acknowledge that there are absolutes, that there is a fixed point of morality. And so basically it says we're not even going to talk about that. I'm not going to believe that. And it takes God out of the equation. And then ultimately for those of us that believe in moral absolutes, we can't have a conversation because they have totally ejected God from the equation. And so instead of fruitful discourse, thinking and reasoning together about these things, it becomes a shouting match that's all about passions and about power plays. Moral relativism is a problem. It removes God from the equation. Romans 1, verses 21 and following, tell us what happens in a society that falls prey to moral relativism and removes God from the equation of what is right and what is wrong. And I won't read it for you, but let me summarize the argument that Paul lays out. And you should read this. If you want to see a biblical picture of what is happening in our country right now and where it leads to, read Romans chapter 1, beginning around verse 21. Here's what happens. When we say we're removing God from the equation, I don't believe that there is a God that makes absolutes right or wrong. He says our minds become darkened and we become fools who masquerade as wise people. The Bible says the fool says in his heart there is no God. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And so when you remove God from the equation, you move from any chance of wisdom into the darkness of foolishness. And then it says, you know what happens? God gives them over. When people remove God from the equation, he says, all right, let me, let me let you run with that ball for a little while and see what happens. He says God gives people over to their cravings, their desires, their lust, and they begin to worship created things. They, that is us. Some, you know, in some ways, since Paul addresses homosexuality and sexuality, Perverse sexuality is a worship of self. That's what it is. It's a worship of self and of the creature rather than the creator. And then Paul says, and what you will find is that males will burn in their passions for other males and women will exchange the natural relationship, that is the man-woman relationship, 
for the unnatural. That is gay relationships among women. And then he says what will happen is society will become filled with all sorts of hatred and fighting and rebellion and evil. And it will come to the point, not only are those who have vacated God from the public square content to do what they want to do for themselves, they begin to give approval of those who do the same things. So the Bible would show us that, you know, years ago, when we started seeing a lot of this movement to normalize certain uh, sexual immorality, the argument was this, hey, we just want to be free to do what we want to do. That was their argument. We're not trying to mandate anything or push it on anyone else. And in the course of my adult life, we have seen that totally change to where those have become movements where they have begun to normalize and try to take over society with these ideas because they want to be approved and they want to tell others you should do these things too. And that's what the Bible says will happen. They will want to condone those things in society. That's what happens. And Romans 1 says this, whether Christian or not, Christian society or not, Greek or Roman or some pagan place way off, you say, well, they don't know about God. Actually, Romans 1 says that God has made His divine power and His attributes known to everybody. It's there. He has made it clear that there is a God but they thought it not worthwhile to retain a knowledge of God and instead sought to make themselves gods. People know that there is a God. They know. They just don't want God to tell them what to do. They want to do what they want to do. Now let me say it this way. We want to do what we want to do. And you've got moral relativism rampant in our day. And these people try to take the moral high road. They take that philosophy and say, you know, we're just trying to be tolerant. We're just trying to love everybody. We're trying to make space for everyone. That has generally been the argument. We're the defenders of human rights. We're the defenders of civil rights. We're the defenders of freedom so that everybody can find their place in society. But I would say to you, that is not the case. That is not what moral relativism does. And the proof is that you look out in the society today, and I would ask you to consider this, that those who have take them, taken God out of the equation and taken that philosophy to seed, I want to ask you today, are they, are those folks tolerant of people who disagree with them? Some of the most vile and hateful and tolerant speech in our day is coming from those who claim to be totally tolerant of everyone. And it's just not the case. They're grabbing power and they're using fine-sounding words and terms and arguments to try to take society captive don't listen to that look and see the Bible says by their fruits you will know them are those seeking tolerance and freedom really tolerant I would say no no if you disagree with the new ethics for instance in our culture and in our country today that are being promoted that accepts I read yesterday and I think it was a school in, uh, I think it was California, I'm not, I'm not sure. They had brought a curriculum into the elementary school and they were teaching kids that there are over 100 genders. Okay. Oh my goodness. What? And they're teaching all of these things and anybody who dares disagree, you will not receive love and grace and kindness. You will be called all sorts of hateful and vile things. Oh, usually they're PC. They're politically correct words, right? You're, you're a bigot. You're a hater. You're a misogynist. 
You're a homophobe. They call you all sorts of things. They're slandering and they're reviling you. Moral relativism is not accepting of those who disagree. It's morality. It's just a man-centered morality. I want you to take a close look now in society and notice how those who are pushing a moral relativism and a new ethic, what they do with those who disagree. Can we talk about it civilly? No, we cannot. You will be censored, taken off Facebook, off Twitter, maybe permanently, maybe for just a few days, if you disagree with their, their ideas of morality. Is that, is that tolerant? Yes or no? doesn't seem very tolerant to me. You'll be canceled, you'll be blocked, you'll be blasted, you'll be censored, you will be despised, you will be hated. They will try to erase you from the public square. Doesn't seem very kind and accepting. Doesn't seem like they're pushing for freedom to me for viewpoints that disagree. So let me say this, especially if this is true, this little study I read is true, if only 10% of the Gen Z, and I don't like categorizing people, you know, Gen Z, Gen X, whatever, but that's how they do their surveys. And it says teens and young adults, only 10% strongly agreed that there are fixed points of morality in absolutes. Only 10%. I would just ask you, if you are not in that 10%, if you're in that 75%, and you say that it's totally up to society to decide what's right and wrong, I would just ask you to consider the flaws with those arguments and consider the hatefulness and the ugliness and the lack of acceptance and the unwillingness to accept diversity that's coming from those that use those words as catchphrases, and nothing more. This passage is full of great news, actually. And it's found in verse 11. We'll close with this last point. That actually it's in Christ. It is only in Christ that you will find acceptance, no matter who you are and what you've done. Jesus is the Savior of new beginnings. And though our sin and identification with sin is serious, it defames God and it defaces His image bearers and His creation, what I would say to you, God is serious about sin, but He is this, He is utterly loving and patient and kind and merciful to sinners. He's full of grace. God does not, has not, and will not change his mind about sin, but he's done something about it. He has not sought to cancel you because of your sin, or not to shame you, but instead he sent Jesus to take on your shame. And my shame. And the penalty. And I can tell you, from that list of ten, at points in my life, I would say, I fit almost every one of those. And Paul says, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were cleansed, you were sanctified, you were changed. How how did that happen? It happened by coming to Jesus, who says, you know what, I don't care what you have done in the past. Oh, sure, sin is serious. But I want to erase that. I want to give you a new beginning. I want to make you a new creation. I want to make you a new person who becomes a divine image bearer in the way that God intended. Jesus is so graceful, so accepting. I'll tell you, so tolerant. (laughs) Christians are not marked by those phrases very often, are they? Gracious, loving, accepting, and tolerant. I'll tell you, but Jesus is. That is who he is. 
and he stands ready. It doesn't matter if you're Greek, if you're Roman, if you're Jew, if you're uh, American, if you're liberal, if you're conservative, if you're country, if you're a big city, if you're urban, if you're rural, rural, who cares about that? Jesus doesn't. There's neither slave nor free. There's not woman. There's not man. There's not any of those things, those distinctions that the world keeps on pushing and sticking their finger in. And, and riling people up about, Jesus says, all of you, you know what you ought to do? Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to me. Lay down your sin. Lay down those barriers that go against the kingdom of God that ruin life and defame God and come to the God who created you. If you're here today, and you look out in this world and you say, there is no place for me. There is no one who will accept me as I am. Jesus stands ready to accept you. Now, he does say, lay down your sin. That's called repentance. See it for what it is. As a cancer, as a tumor, as a, as a deadly appendage to your life, lay it down. And come to me. Come and receive life. Life to the full. Life abundant. You see, on the cross, Jesus took the penalty for your sin so that he could cleanse you. He could give you a new name. He could say that your debt is paid, paid in full. You are free. There are no accusations against you at the cross. It is the great leveling field. Come to the cross. Come to Jesus. Be washed and made clean. There is no greater feeling in this world, friends, than at the point where you recognize, I have sinned against God. But I don't have to run from Him. That He calls me to run to Him. That He wants to wash and make clean and wipe away all of my sin debt. And when you do that, there is no more pure and freeing place than that. Come to Him. Have your heart changed. Your life changed. And you know, this idea of repentance and coming to the cross, it's, you know what it's not? It's not self-effort. It's not saying, I promise God I'm going to clean up my act. I'm, I'm going to be right from here on out in my own power. Hey folks, in our own power we can't do anything. But it's to say, if you'll have me, I do want to lay those things down. He'll cleanse you. And then it says, so you're washed and you're sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. God works His power in you. God will clean you up. And you know, I've heard stories of, of salvation where people have battled their whole life with a certain besetting sin. It has just gripped them fully. And they come to Christ and immediately... I've heard of those who have been addicted to drugs and alcohol and they come to Christ and they say, that desire left 100% when I came to Him. And yet I've known others who have had those same kinds of besetting sins, some of these sexual sins that they continue to struggle with throughout their life and yet by the power of the Holy Spirit there is a freedom. But it's in His power and in His time. But it is not self-effort. It's His effort. That's so important. To hear that Jesus is not asking you to clean up your act and be a good boy or girl in your own power. But it's to come to the cross. Receive the presence of God and the Holy Spirit and He'll change you. And He'll make you fit. And He will take you into His eternal kingdom where there is no unrighteousness and impurity. No more defaming God and defacing His creation, the eternal kingdom of God. That's what I was going to preach about today. But I felt like I needed to talk about these things. But it's worthy of our attention to think about the kingdom of God and that eternal place where those who have been cleansed by Christ will spend eternity with Him. I want you to be there with me. Jesus wants you to be there with him. 
so much so that he left the glories of heaven and he came on a rescue mission for you. He's made a way. Will you come to him today? If you're here and you've never accepted Christ, you've never identified your life with him, you've never taken that positive step of repenting of sins, coming to him, publicly identifying with him, we do that through a profession of faith and baptism. If you've never done that, do that today. Come into the kingdom. If you'd like to do that, I'd love to meet you here during this time or after the service, pray with you and talk to you more about that. Come to him today. Father, it's not we recognize in walking an aisle that saves us but that it's a divine transaction that takes place in the depths of our hearts and our souls where you work in our lives and we submit to your work in our lives. We value your cleansing work in our hearts. And we come to you to receive your love and your grace and your mercy and a position in your family a place at the table. Pray that that would be the reality today in the hearts of some who are here and who have never done that. And for us who are Christians, who have our heads swimming, <laughs> seeing all of the changes taking place in our culture, God, let the north star of your divine character shine and draw us in today to be clear about what's right or wrong, what's moral and immoral. Help us to order our lives according to your kingdom, not the kingdom of man. Give us the strength by your spirit. Give us the help that we need to walk worthy of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John, you come and do announcements of our celebration. Just a uh, few things. Hopefully you had a chance to pick a bulletin up on your uh, way in. Just want to remind you of a few things. Uh, this coming Wednesday night is Cowboy Cowgirl Night for Awana. Yeehaw. Yeah, oh, that was that's a little better. He, he's he raised in there. He's got the motions down and stuff. So looking forward to that this coming Wednesday night. It's uh, Spaghetti Night, Deacon's Meeting, Wednesday night at 5 o'clock. Uh, also, tonight at 5.30 is our communion service, so we invite you to come uh, back tonight at 5.30 for uh, communion. Uh, the Sagers uh, are out of town. They've, they've been looking for a place to live, and they are not going to be back in time tonight. I think Sean's going to show a little bit later uh, about tonight, and so um, no uh, group time tonight at 5 o'clock, uh, but communion at 5.30. Uh, there are several uh, women's ministry uh, events coming up February 13th, uh, that Saturday, Prepare meals uh, for the Baptist Ranch uh, on that Saturday. I do not see a time on there. I do not see a time. I don't see Miss Betty, but I'm not sure what the times are, but willing to uh, figure that out let you all know. And then also Ladies Night Out February 2nd at Western Sizzlin uh, as well. And then also uh, we do have our night to serve. The last several years we've served in the concession stand at the school. That's the uh, uh, Ozark Mountain School District uh, night. And... Um, that is this Tuesday night, sign-up sheets in the foyer. Uh, we do have a lot of empty spaces available to help serve that night, and so please consider serving. Uh, it's an hour at a time, and if you have any questions about that, you can ask me, but looking forward to, uh, to doing that uh, as well. And if you're interested in a church shirt, uh, the information is in there. We do have several sizes. There are $13. Church does not make any money on that. It is a real nice, super soft uh, shirt uh, as well, and I believe uh, that is all the announcements uh, I have. Any uh, any birthdays? So we've, we've kind of moved the birthdays and anniversaries uh, to um, the end of the month, and so it is the last uh, Sunday of the month. Uh, any birthdays or anniversaries? Uh, you can stand up where you're at and share. If you want to put money in the birdhouse, you can. If you want to come up later and put money in the birdhouse, you can. You're more than uh, welcome to do that. Any birthdays or anniversaries? Anniversary. How many years? 47. All right. 
pitkään. It's, your, it's not your anniversary, is it? I don't know. Your parents would be kind of upset about that. How old are you? Ten? Six. It's JC. Six. You made it up here all by yourself. You want to wave to everybody? <laughs> birthday? You're seven? Congratulations. My little pony birthday party. Birthdays, not anniversary. I'm 49, I don't know. <laughs> Robin the Cradle. 31, so young. I'd ask Jerry to remember when he was 31, but he was busy helping Noah build the ark. And Jerry's not even paying attention to catch that. He'll have to watch that later. Birthday? <laughs> Just feels like that sometimes, right? Birthday? Not your anniversary, right? I don't think so. 15, 16, 13. Hey, man. Birthday? Tomorrow. And <laughs> hospital was busy in the month of January all those years. It is the first. Well, yeah, tomorrow's February. So, well, happy birthday and happy anniversary to everybody. Does that have a chip reader? Mine, I turned 46, but I don't have. Uh, I'll take your credit card later. Okay. All right. Well, happy birthday and happy anniversary to each of you in January. And uh, we, uh, we thank God for each of you. Uh, brief word as we close uh, today about tonight. As John said, we're canceling the 5 o'clock peace since the Sagers were not able to get back in from Mississippi. I'm assuming most of you uh, heard that uh, they have taken a position with Fellowship of Christian Athletes in Mississippi as uh, missionaries there, and they'll be moving sometime probably in the next month or so, uh, sometime this spring as they get things lined out. They've been leading us on Sunday nights for the last month in men's and women's Bible studies, and uh, uh, they announced they're leaving last week, and one of the things that uh, we were hoping to do, and we'll just do that tonight, i We'll uh, empty the birdhouse and then uh, uh, put that out there. If anyone, we're going to take up a little love offering uh, to help them with some of their moving expenses and just as a way of saying thank you and we love you and uh, wish God's best for you. If you'd like to be a part of that, you can. Uh, not a big deal. But I do hope you'll come back tonight. Um, deacons, we'll meet here at 5 o'clock to get things set up, and then communion will be at 5.30. So join us tonight. Let me close us in prayer. Father, we're thankful uh, as we remember the love of Jesus the sacrifice of Christ, and the great love that you have for us. And as we uh, prepare our hearts this afternoon to come to your table, I pray that the grace of uh, Christ would well up in our hearts to thanksgiving and appreciation and to uh, a spirit of celebration for what we have in Jesus, for this eternal life that you have so graciously given us in Christ. So help us as we prepare and as we celebrate tonight, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You're dismissed.